Welcome to another installment of Historical Homicide. I'm your host, Christina Bentley, ready to delve into dark local history with you, dear listener. Today's episode raises some interesting questions. What are your thoughts on closure? Does it ease your mind to tie up loose ends and pack situations into neat little boxes? Maybe those boxes are stacked categorically to look through at your leisure. Or is it the mess of life where you thrive? The paint spills that combine to make a beautiful picture. Is the beauty in the chaos or in the order of things? However you see the world or life in general, let's delve into the idea of the gray space in between, the unfinished. What did our world look like in 1894? In order to understand the context of today's tale, I have to give you a brief history lesson. I feel like Severus Snape right now. Open your books to page 394. Enjoy that, Harry Potter fans. Anyway, the 1890s are a time of huge economic change. We are nearing the end of the Gilded Age, a time of rapid economic growth for industrial work. Although wages are growing for men, women, and children who work in industry, many outliers, mostly immigrants, experience poverty and inequality. The Gilded Age overlaps with the gay 90s era, in which the rich, for the most part, are living decadent lives and getting even richer. As if this isn't enough economic chaos, let's throw in the panic of 1893. About a year before our story begins, there's an intense economic depression. Hundreds of banks close, thousands of businesses fail, and many farm operations close. The unemployment rate in New York hits 35%. Times are desperate. People are feeling the full weight of living, and it is hard to bear. This is our scene. There are many, many players today. This story could go on forever, but for time's sake, I'll narrow it down. Let's talk about Myron and Frances Shearman. They live on Winch Road. Four of their daughters have already died early deaths. They have one son, and his wife dies, leaving Myron and Frances to raise their grandchildren, Arthur, who is 10, and Gertrude, who is two years old. That's family number one. Now, Myron has two cousins, Winslow and Byron. Let's talk about Winslow and his family first. Winslow is married to Laura, and they have a few children, but we'll focus on their daughter, Cynthia. They have a farm on Winch Road as well. Cynthia marries and moves to Pennsylvania. She has three sons and a baby that passes away. Not only does the baby die, but her husband dies. He was a farmer, he did farm work, and one day he got overheated and shocked his system by drinking water that was too cold when he was too hot. So the baby's gone, Cynthia's husband's gone, and her two oldest sons die of diphtheria a month or so later. All she has left is her youngest son, Fred. Cynthia arranges for Fred to move in with her parents, Winslow and Laura, while she takes on a housekeeping job for a relative who lives on Wellman Road. So we've covered 
Myron and Frances Shearman, raising their grandkids, Arthur and Gertrude, Winslow and Laura Shearman, helping to raise their grandson, Fred. All of these people live along Winch Road. Next, we have Byron, Winslow's brother, and his wife, Anna, who live on Mead Road. There isn't a lot of detail about them, but you'll see why they're important later. Many murder stories start off happily, but quickly spiral downward. This is not one of them. We're starting with tragedy, right out of the gate. Francis Shearman's brother falls ill. She and Myron plan on visiting him before he passes. Arthur, their grandson, is old enough to stay home and help out. But little Gertrude needs more care. So Myron and Francis load up the buggy and take little Gertie with them. Unfortunately, they don't get too far. As they're crossing over train tracks, they get struck by an oncoming train. The horse and Gertrude are killed immediately on impact. Myron and Francis have life-threatening injuries that they succumb to a few days after the accident. They are never told that their sweet granddaughter was killed. The community is absolutely devastated by the horrific accident. The funeral for all three victims is planned as their friends and family grieve, and our tale of murder begins. Winslow Shearman is asked to be a pallbearer at the funeral, and there certainly is enough to carry. Everyone in the community is showing up to the somber affair. Everyone except a few of our key players. Winslow's wife, Laura, is in poor health. She's having a difficult time moving around her own home, much less a funeral procession. Her daughter, Cynthia, agrees to stay behind and care for her ailing mother. Cynthia's son, Fred, also stays behind. He didn't want to go to the funeral, so he is allowed to go across the street and play with his friend for the day. His friend's name is also Fred, Fred Lawson. The boys plan on shooting their rifles at targets and hanging out around the Lawson farm. Everything seems to be in order. Winslow leaves Laura and Cynthia at home around noon. At around one o'clock in the afternoon, Byron, Winslow's brother, and his wife, Anna, stop by the house on their way to the funeral. Byron is thirsty, so he steps inside to say hi to Laura and Cynthia and get a glass of water. Anna stays in the carriage and waves, and in a few minutes, they're back on the road. The funeral proceedings go as smoothly as possible. All three accident victims are laid to rest in Bentley Cemetery. You can find Bentley Cemetery in Lakewood on the corner of Fairmount Avenue and Shadyside. Byron and Anna collect themselves and make their way home. Winslow is staying a little longer to make sure everything is wrapped up. Byron and Anna decide to stop in to see Laura and Cynthia. As they make their way into the front drive, Fred and Fred run over and hop into the carriage. The boys are still up to their outdoor shenanigans as Byron ties up the team of horses. Anna steps inside the house. She enters through the storm door and immediately feels that something isn't right. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Brindle Barn on Boulevard Avenue in Celeron has it all. Stop in to shop, sign up for a class, or pop in to grab a bite to eat. 
The Brindle Barn also features delicious locally roasted Dalahas coffee at their self-serve coffee bar. Check out the class schedule and weekly menus on Facebook and Instagram at Brindle Barn Co. When you stop in, tell them Christina from Historical Homicide sent you. Now back to our story. Besides the sound of dinner cooking on the stovetop, the air is ominously still. As Anna enters the living room, she screams in horror. Laura is lying on her back in a pool of blood. Anna screams for Byron. He hears the urgency in her voice and rushes into the house. He sees the gruesome scene and searches the house for Cynthia, who he finds, but not as he had hoped. She, like Laura, has been struck in the head and is lying on the kitchen floor, soaked in blood. The boys, Fred and Fred, hear the commotion. When they come to see what's going on, Byron tells them to get help. Immediately, the boys get two of the horses and ride into Lakewood, yelling as they go, Help! Murder! They ride into Lakewood, because that's where the nearest telephone is, and maybe a justice of the peace. Lakewood has no police agency. There are also no state police. Even the county sheriff only had a few deputies. The closest law enforcement agency available to investigate is Jamestown's. That evening, the coroner, the mayor of Jamestown, Eliezer Green, and a few investigators come to the house. At that point, the Shearman family has cleaned up the blood and laid their dear relatives on cots, preparing them for their funerals. But the biggest question looms heavily. Who killed Laura Shearman, and her daughter, Cynthia Davis. The only evidence of note are footprints in the mud outside, leading away from the house. They're large men's footprints. Other than that, nothing. Fingerprinting is not in practice in 1894, and if anyone is found covered in blood, it's most likely from butchering their own chickens. The next day, about 500 volunteers come out to search for clues, but what clues may have been left are quickly trampled, and most of the volunteers turn out to just be people with morbid curiosity. They peek in through the windows to observe the autopsies. All volunteers are driven away from the home as family and friends continue to grieve. So far, no strong evidence, other than footprints, no suspects. But what about a motive? Winslow Shearman is a successful farmer. He has the highest assessed farmland in Busti. He is known for lending money to neighbors and for changing out larger bills for smaller ones. He's not a huge fan of banks, but does keep some accounts. What he doesn't keep in the bank, he keeps at home. He's a cash-on-hand kind of guy, so we'd expect him to live a wealthy lifestyle. But he doesn't. He's actually quite stingy. Ornery, even. He and his family do most of the hard farm work themselves, because farm workers are hard to come by. He doesn't give cash willingly unless he knows there will be a later profit from it. He was even hesitant to give Laura the help she needed when she was frail and ill before her passing. 
His reputation is widely known. If there's suspicion that he's leaving large sums of money in the house, when's the best time to steal it? When everyone is in town, at a funeral, and not in their homes. And who locks their doors? It's deemed unnecessary until now. The blows to Laura and Cynthia's heads seem to be done out of a crime of passion, like someone who got caught by surprise upon seeing them home. So we have two factors that weigh into our murder suspect. The perpetrator is a man, as evidenced from the footprints, and this man did not attend the funeral. Our suspect list? Any man with large feet in the area who wasn't at the funeral. It's quite a lengthy list. Let's cover a few. Fred, Cynthia's son, Laura's grandson, described as odd and unusual. After the ordeal, he is seen around town eating apples, laughing, soaking in this newfound public attention. We also have a tra transient, masked gang of robbers making their way through parts of Pennsylvania. Could they have entered the southern tier of New York on their robbery streak? We also have Edward Archer, a disgruntled worker with whom Winslow Shearman had a disagreement. And Daniel Jennings, a hunter, trapper, and butcher from Frewsburg who did not attend the funeral. Daniel always carries a hatchet, and he's tall. The blows to the victims came from someone with height. Lastly, we have George Depew, a shady drifter and handyman claiming to be from Warren, Pennsylvania. He's living with a prostitute in Dunkirk, New York. More on him later. We'll get back to the suspects in a minute. Let's return to the autopsies. They are performed by two doctors, William Bemis and Laban Hazeltine. After the necessary procedures are done, the coroner shares an idea. Pause. Now, I find this part of the story to be the most fascinating, and I think you will too. Unpause. In the 1890s, there is a scientific proposal going around. Optography. The idea that the retina of the eye can retain the last image a person saw before death. It's a long shot, but at this point, they'll try anything. So, four days after the murders, using the most scientific, advanced applications and microscopes, doctors peer into Cynthia's eyes. And what do they see? Nothing. The eyes were too opaque to make out any image. Even when they were removed, there was no visible image. Sorry, did I get your hopes up? Feeling defeated, the doctors check Laura's eyes. But wait, what is that? The doctors, coroner, and all present look into the microscope and unanimously agree. There's a clear image of a man. He's wearing an unbuttoned overcoat, vest, wrinkled slacks, and no watch or jewelry. That much is clear. But what isn't clear is his face. What a discovery. Laura's eyes are removed and taken immediately to the sheriff. But unfortunately, by the time the evidence arrives, the eyes have slightly shriveled and the image becomes opaque. 
The coroner decides the best course of action is to remove Laura and Cynthia's heads from their bodies and keep them as evidence in case a similar murder happens. This way, if the murder weapon is found, it can be measured against their skull fractures. According to newspapers some years later, the heads were actually kept in a box in a bank vault. Let's get back to our suspect list. Fred Davis, Cynthia's son, Laura's grandson. He starts acting odd after their murders went down. He's enjoying the publicity and his 15 minutes of fame. He gallivants around town, laughing, eating apples, and gleaning lots of attention. But even with all the eyes on him, he's not doing anything else suspicious. There's money missing from the Shearman house, taken during the murders, but Winslow will not reveal how much. Fred isn't spending any extra money, and his shorter stature alone rules him out as a suspect. Whoever murdered Laura and Cynthia would have been taller, according to the strikes to their heads. Also, Fred's feet are too small to match the large men's footprints leading away from the house. Next up, there's a gang making their way through Pennsylvania committing similar crimes. Could they have passed through southern New York in their spree? Maybe, but there isn't any proof. Then we have Edward Archer. When Winslow is pressed about anyone with whom he had a quarrel, Edward is the only person who comes to mind. He and his wife worked for Winslow, but after too many disagreements, the archers terminated their employment and sought other farm work. And as investigators find out, the archers have an alibi that checks out. They were working the day of the murder. Now, Daniel Jennings starts off as a viable suspect. He's the butcher and trapper from Frewsburg who always carries a hatchet. And with his absence from the funeral, authorities looked at him a little closer. But he too has an alibi and witnesses to corroborate his story. And now we are left with George DePew. Who is George and how did he get on our suspect list? Well, this is a fun little side story. George is a character of questionable reputation. He finds himself in Salamanca temporarily taking residence with a 46-year-old eccentric prostitute named Nell Duke. One day, Nell rushes into the Salamanca Police Department and begs to be locked up in the jail for her own safety. She claims that the man who is staying with her, George, is the bust-eye murderer. If he finds out she's told anyone, he'll kill her too. As police question her, they ask how she knows this information. Nell states that George regrets not being part of a lucrative bank robbery in Erie, Pennsylvania, but he doesn't dare go through Lakewood right now. His large feet may give him away as the murderer. The police let Nell stay for a few days, even with her own bedding. But by the time they try to find George, he's left the area. They refuse to let Nell stay any longer. And in a fit of fear and despondency, she fills her dress with rocks, then throws herself in the river. Her suicide attempt is unsuccessful, and she is pulled out of the water by passers-by. Meanwhile, George is eventually located, questioned, and let go due to lack of any real evidence. 
From this point on, essentially a witch hunt ensues. If there is even a hint of any wrongdoing, the police are immediately involved. Everyone from neighbors to local politicians are accused. A few were eventually tried, but ultimately acquitted. And that's it. Really. Were you hoping to find out the murderer's identity? To tie up the loose ends and find that lovely idea of closure? This case is still seeking that almost 130 years after its occurrence. It can be difficult to look back on these cases and know that with today's technology, these murders may very well have been solved. I'll be posting a few photos from today's show on my Instagram page. Please comment with who you think the killer is and why. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Join me next time for more tales of murder on May 17th. Thank mm-hmm. you.